Culture Prayer Conference. This is uh, session five, the global prayer movement. And so what we're going to do in this session is we're going to wrap up all these ideas that we've been talking about in relationship to the hour in which we're living right now. There are exciting things. There's so many fun stories of what God is doing, raising up night and day prayer in 2024, 2023, 2020, 2015, in these last years in a way that is unprecedented in human history. But for us to get to that, we need to just go back in time just a little bit, back to David's tabernacle. And we need to talk about this verse in Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in Amos 9:11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. So this is a prophecy by the prophet Amos back in the Old Testament. And this prophet is hearing from the Lord, God is not done with David's tabernacle. In fact, he's going to restore it at a time in the future. But it says this, I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be. Now, we move to the New Testament, and we're in the book of Acts, and there is this really fun moment that is happening that this is the context of this passage that we're about to read. The Jews have just heard the most unthinkable news imaginable. The gospel was allowed to go to Gentiles, the heathen, the dirt, the scum of the earth. And the Jews are livid. They're like, you gave our Jewish Messiah to Gentiles. Are you kidding me? And the apostles are having to defend their position. And so they're in this whole, you know, debacle of, of the, you know, the religious leaders in the church are going, you can't give the Jewish Messiah to non-Jews. He's ours. And then all these, you know, new thoughts or, or rather all these thoughts and words of Jesus are coming back and they're like, no, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And, and uh, you know, uh, anyway, all these different thought processes are hitting them. And they're in this, and it's almost like the apostles, I'm going to be a little tongue-in-cheek here, it's almost like when they're accused of this, you gave the Jewish Messiah to Gentiles? How dare you? It's almost like they went, oh, it's even worse than that. And you go, what could be worse than that? We're also giving them our Jewish tabernacle of David. The heck you say? You will do no such thing. And so the context of Acts chapter 15 is the apostles saying, do you not know the words of the prophets? That not only do the Gentiles get the Messiah, the Gentiles get the precious, coveted tabernacle of David as well. And it was always the prophetic land. So here we have it. Acts chapter 15, in the middle of an argument about do Gentiles get the Jewish Messiah? It says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. He's quoting Amos 9.11. It's ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. Check that out. This is a powerful thought. It says, angels that have been around long enough to be able to pay attention, to be able to give testimony, Angels could have told you long before the creation of man that Gentiles were going to do the tabernacle of David. What? There weren't even humans in ages past, let alone Jews, let alone a tabernacle of David, let alone a guy named David. <laughs> it's like, oh no, this has been the plan of God from the ages the plan of God for the ages was for Gentiles to do the tabernacle of David? This is awesome! I'm telling you what we are doing is not new. It is as old as the ages in the heart of God. This was always the plan. This is a really cool plan to find ourselves in. It says this, as it used to be. I love that phrase. God will do it as it used to be. There's a lot about that. I'm not going to touch on all of it. But just a couple of things when it says, I'm going to restore. And I love that God's taking ownership. He says, I'm going to do it. He says, you guys aren't going to be able to stand in my way. 
I am going to restore the fallen tabernacle of David. You wait and see because it's my fallen tabernacle of David and David's my dude. And I've had this plan from the ages. I am going to step into human history at some point in the future. I'm going to step into human history and I will restore David's fallen tabernacle. Whoa, that's some like serious ownership. And really, when we look at the, the landscape of the earth, it's going to take God. He says, oh, don't worry, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to restore it as it used to be. Now, as it used to be, just a couple of points, as it used to be was 24-7. As it used to be was worship and prayer intermingled. As it used to be was full-time people doing the house of prayer. Not only full-time, but at least some. And God says, I am going to restore the fallen tabernacle of David as it used to be. That's a pretty big statement. Look at David, uh, David's tabernacle here, just a verse out of uh, 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 6, top of page 2. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to make petition, that's pray or intercede, <coughs> to give thanks and to praise the Lord. They were to play lyres and harps, sound the cymbals, and blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. There is going to be a restoration of this blending of prayer and worship, of music, of, of intercession, this beautiful thing. It's just really a really cool thing that God's going to do. He says, and I'm going to do it. We'll move on because this is a really big point that we want to make sure we understand. This is the most incredible point to me. I don't know. There's a lot of them that are fun, but I look at this one and I'm like, you prophesied that a long time ago. That was a really big word you gave. He says it this way. I will return and rebuild. I'm in the middle of page two here. Letter E. David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its, ru or its ruins. I will rebuild. I will restore it. Why? God says, I'm going to rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I'm going to do it. It's important to me. I will see to it that this happens, and I have a purpose. What is your purpose? That two things. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord. Whenever it says the remnant, it's talking about the Jewish remnant that still holds to the purposes of God. So whenever you read that term, the remnant, remnant is referring to the Jews that stayed faithful to God throughout each season of Israel's history. There was always a remnant. There was always a group of people that were like, hey, the rest of the nation's going crazy, but we still love God and we're about the purposes of God. He says, I'm going to restore the fallen tabernacle of David for two reasons. Reason one, the remnant, the Jewish remnant, that they might be able to seek me, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. That's purpose one. What's purpose two? And all the Gentiles who bear my name. Huh? You're going to rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David so 100% of Gentile believers that love Jesus, 100% all, that 100% of them would do the tabernacle of David? You're going to rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David so that the Jewish remnant would do the tabernacle of David and 100% of saved Gentiles would do the tabernacle of David? Holy moly. That's crazy. What? How does that even happen? He's like, oh, don't worry. I'm going to do it. This will be beyond your ability. But I will do it in the future, in those days, at that time. I will act sovereignly and I will enlist the entire church, Jew or Gentile, into the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Guys, that is one of the most monumental, crazy prophecies in your Bible. Let me rephrase it. Every saved person at the end of the age will be participating in the tabernacle of David reality. I can promise you the future of the church. I can look right here and see it right here. The future of the church is all Gentiles, no matter where they live, they will be participating in the restoration of the tabernacle of David because God says, I'm going to do it, and here's why. I want them all singing to me. That remnant that was there in Jerusalem that was surrounding the Ark of the Covenant when David put that group of people, he said, I loved that so much, I want 100% of my bride to do it. 
I want every saved person, Jew or Gentile, to participate in that reality. And before the end, it's going to happen. So what that means <laughs> is we know the future. Now we're just walking into it. Because the future is already told. So what that also means is, at some point, things need to kind of start getting going. I mean, this has been a prophecy for a long time, since Amos. And God's purpose in this is that <clears throat> he is going to apprehend a generation. And I will rebuild, he says. So his active work in a generation will ensure that 100% of the Jewish and Gentile population that loves Jesus participates in night and day prayer. Oh my gosh, that's a big deal. We are living in the generation where God has begun to apprehend the people of God across the earth. We are witnessing the greatest uptick in the starting of 24-7 houses of prayer and other expressions that are in that swirl but aren't 24-7 we're not 24-7. There are so many houses of prayer that are going five hours a week, 10 hours a week, you know, 100 hours a week. That's its whole other demographic that is incredible on its way. But right now in the earth, there is an explosion of literal 24-7 houses of prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The rise of the praying church. When I came to know the Lord in 1999... <clears throat> I, you know, came straight out of atheism. I didn't have any history in the church. I just started reading my Bible. Somebody told me, somebody gave me this book by Jim Simbola, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And I read this book and I was like, this is awesome. If you don't know that book, it's all about testimonies of prayer. It is an incredible book. Every person in this room would be so blessed to read that book. Okay. I'm reading this book, you know, at 18 years old. And I'm like, this is awesome. It's all about prayer and what God does when we pray. And I read the book, and as soon as I, I'm done reading it, I go back to Family Christian Bookstore. Did you guys ever have Family Christian Bookstores down in this area? Well, anyway, we did in Dallas, and now I'm old. Amen. Okay, so, so I go back to Family Christian Bookstore, and I walk in, and I go, oh, I read this book, and it was awesome. What else you got? And they go, well, there's a sequel, Fresh Faith. And I was like, give it to me. And so I read that book, and I've read it in three days. And I go back and go, what's next? And they go, well, you got this book. And, and I go, give it to me. And I read it. It's three books. You know, three days later, I've read it. And I go back. And I do this for like two weeks. And I go back about week three or whatever. And I have read probably seven books on prayer. And I am fired up. And I'm excited. And I go back, and I go, what else you got? And they said, that's it. I said, what do you mean that's it? Your family Christian bookstore. And they go, well, that's all the books we have on prayer. Unacceptable. You need to repent. Go find me more books. I mean, I wasn't quite that aggressive, but it's definitely what I was thinking. And here's what happened. This is just, this is just a, a little bit of a testimony from my personal experience. I've not been in the kingdom of God that long. 1999 feels like a long time if you were born in 2000. But if you're not born in 2000, that's not so long ago. And it's really not that long when you're talking about the whole of Christianity, right? Two, 1999 was a minute ago, really. In 1999, Christian bookstores had on their shelves what people wanted to read. So the hunger for books, publications on prayer, was about seven books worth at the Christian bookstore. Okay, we got Mardell's now in Dallas, and Mardell's is like the epicenter of Christian bookstores. The shelves go up to what seems to be 16 stories tall. And, and there's just bookshelves everywhere. And every kind of Bible trinket and binding and, and little bookmarks and braids and whatever else you want. They got it, man, okay? Mardell's is the bomb. Walk into Mardell's now, and you want a book on prayer? There's aisles of them. I mean, thousands of different books about prayer. It's 2024. 1999 was a minute ago. Why am I boring you with this? In the short time I've been in the kingdom, it's really not that been long. I have watched the hunger level of the body of Christ in America pivot. Because authors write what people will read and Christian bookstores put on their shelves what people will buy. 
And in 1999, that was seven books on prayer. And in 2024, it's, you know, 2,000 books on prayer. What happened? The Lord is starting to stir the hearts of his people. How are we ever going to get to every Gentile believer wants to do night and day prayer if we can't even get an eighth book on prayer bought by Christians? There's got to be a stirring of the hunger level. I have watched in my short minute of being in the kingdom a number of things transition. I'm going to give you a few more. Top of page four. Since 1999, so this is just, there's nothing magical about 1999. It's just when my frame of reference started, okay? You've got your own frame of reference. If you like your frame of reference better, you do you, okay? But in 1999, amen, I at least got one amen over here. <clears throat> so uh, in 1999, when I gave my life to the Lord, these things didn't exist. Some form of 24-7 prayer on every continent and nearly every nation. But it does now. Large, solemn assemblies where a stadium is filled or there's tens of thousands of people that came together for a day of prayer and not eating food. In 1999, you could fill a, a, a stadium for a Billy Graham crusade. In 1999, if you had the right band, you could get the stadium halfway filled for a Newsboys conference, a concert or something. You could get a couple, there were a few bands that could gather a big, you know, gathering of some tens of thousands of people. You could even have a promise keepers reality and what about, but you could not fill a stadium for a solemn assembly where tens of thousands of people gather for a day to pray fast, cry out to God and ask God for a move of God in the nation and there's not entertainment that day. It's prayer and worship. You couldn't do that in 1999. I've been to a dozen of these now where there's tens of thousands of people in a stadium contending for God to move in our nation in a powerful way. That is a transition in American Christianity. That is a pivot. The global day of prayer began in 2004. Can we just stop for a second? The global day of anything is a crazy idea. It requires technology to get to a certain point. Because you can't have a global day of anything. How would anybody even know that it's happening? A global day of prayer had never occurred before in the history of the earth, before 2004. And now there's a global day of prayer. That is profound. A day where coordinated efforts across the earth are to pray on that day. The massive increase in publications on prayer and expressions of prayer. The One Cry Movement. If you're not familiar with the One Cry Movement, the Baptists have a 24-7 prayer movement, and it's awesome. And the guy that leads it, his name's Bill Elif. He is the most tender-hearted dude. I've heard him speak three times, and every time he's crying the whole time. He's just weeping about the presence of God and the mercy of God. And they do 24-7 prayer meetings in Baptist churches. It's the coolest thing. Like, Baptists praying 24-7 is a really cool thing. Well, that didn't exist in 1999. There are plenty other examples. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. In the short minute that I've been in the kingdom and paying attention a little bit to this subject, things have already shifted. We are living in a generation that God is slowly, he has not yet played the ace card, but he is slowly pivoting a generation. He's changing the expression of Christianity. He is bringing into Christianity the revelation that Jesus is worthy of night and day prayer. It's happening. All right, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make a big statement, and then I got to back it up, so you guys hold me to it, okay? <clears throat> Here's the big statement. I believe the year 1999, and not just because of a couple of us getting saved that year, I believe 1999 was the single greatest year in the history of the prayer movement. And now I'm going to tell you why. And it better be more than a house of prayer in Kansas City started. Don't worry, it is. But in 1999, a, prayer, a house of prayer in Kansas City started. And what happened in uh, IHOP Kansas City, or yeah, IHOP KC, uh, that started in, in, uh, in Kansas City, they began a 24-7 prayer ministry that a, a prayer meeting has literally been going since September, whatever, 1999. I mean, that is a profound thing with live worship and stuff. I love that, but I'm, we've, we just talked about so many houses of prayer in the session earlier. 
So it can't be one house of prayer like, so what? I mean, that's cool, but it's not like life-changing. But what if that one house of prayer wasn't just a house of prayer? What if that house of prayer inspired a movement? A movement that has influenced thousands of houses of prayer to start. Oh, well, that would be new. That's what happened. IHOP Kansas City has had its influence impact thousands of houses of prayer have begun because of the leadership, because of the whatever, the programs, the web stream, the resources, the conferences. Thousands of houses of prayer have started because that house of prayer started in 1999. That is a little bit of God saying, I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. Okay? But if it was just that, I would probably be leaning towards the statement, it was the most important year in the history of the prayer movement, but I wouldn't be ready to say it yet. But what if the same year, 1999, a house of prayer starts in Chichester, England, that winds up starting what they, be, they called a boiler room, Pete Gregg, and what became known as 24-7 Prayer Europe. 24-7 Prayer is the name of their organization. A house of prayer begins in in 1999, over on the other side of the pond, in England, and had no connection back to IHOP Kansas City. It's not like these two guys were like, hey, why don't we start the same year? It'll be cool. They wind up meeting later. These organizations wind up connecting later. But a house of prayer, a 24-7 house of prayer, starts over in Europe, specifically in the UK. Okay, great, a house of prayer started, but I mean, there's been plenty of house of prayer. Why are you telling us this story? Well, what if it wasn't just a house of prayer? What if as a result of that house of prayer, they were able to influence through all their various means and help start hundreds of houses of prayer all throughout Europe and the rest of the world? Remember earlier when I told you a couple of testimonies of this house of prayer, monastery, they were responsible for planting another, you know, whatever, 100 houses of prayer or whatever. It was over 75 years. The other one that was like 314, it was over like 220 years or something like that. Hundreds of houses of prayer started in the short period of like five years after a house of prayer started over in England in 1999, the same year that the Lord also sovereignly started a ministry in Kansas City that's wound up influencing and starting thousands of houses of prayer. Are we starting to see the picture? How many of you know that Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, is the apple of God's eye. Well, if you didn't know, it is. Jesus, this is an interesting thing that you need to understand. Jesus is Jewish. Y'all know that? You know, when he became man, he be, it wasn't an experiment. He became man forever. He became Jewish human forever. So anytime somebody's like, hey, Jesus, what nationality are you? He has an answer. Israeli. I am Jewish. <laughs> like, that is his answer forever. So like in a million years, when we stand next to five foot eight Jewish man Jesus, I always imagine my height, I don't know. He's probably taller. But whenever we stand next to Jewish Jesus, he's still going to be Jewish. So he cares about his country. He cares about his people. He is going to come back and rule the planet from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become the Washington DC of the earth. He will rule the government of his kingdom from Israel, from Jerusalem. Okay. In 1999, you know what God did? He started not one, two, 24 seven houses of prayer in Jerusalem. Oh yeah. And they didn't talk to the guy in America and the guy in the UK, and they were barely aware of each other until it was already over. The Lord started two 24-7 houses of prayer in Jerusalem. He started a 24-7 movement in Europe and a 24-7 movement in the heartland in America. All in 1999. I will rebuild David's fallen tabernacle. God's in charge of timing. I believe what happened in 1999 was the jump start. And since that time, we can see an uptick. It's a snowball effect of what God has been doing in the earth. So now I'm going to tell you some of those stories. after I have a good long drink of water. All right. <clears throat> Let's move here now. Page uh, five. <clears throat> now, in 
now we're going to march forward in time, kind of like we were doing in our history uh, session earlier. We started in 99. Now we're moving to the year 2000. Orange Farm, South Africa. You ever heard anything happening in Orange Farm, South Africa? Well, in 2000, a pastor starts to rally other pastors in his township. There's a, about, I think it's about 100, about 1.3 million people that are in this town or this, this uh, city, you know, metropolitan area, whatever. And, um, and they call them townships there. Anyway, it's about 1.3 million. He starts rallying all these pastors. And in the course of a few years' time, they start 25, 24-7 houses of prayer. Now, listen, you've got to hear me when I say 24-7. I don't mean what's happening here five hours a week. I mean a 24-7 house of prayer. That takes so much work. 25 of them in one city in the year 2000. How did that happen? Well, the floodgates opened in 99 and the rules changed. And now things can happen in ways they weren't happening before because I think God's on the move. I think he's taking responsibility. I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. In the year 2000, the Indonesian prayer towers begin. You know, what is that? You guys familiar with Charisma Magazine? You ever heard of that? Well, you can check it out online. Or I think they still have printed copies somewhere. But Charisma Magazine did an article on the Indonesian prayer tower. So obviously from Indonesia. Indonesia in that hour was a highly persecuted area against Christians. Okay, Very Muslim, radical. It's still not great, but it's in a very different position than it was back in the year 2000. Well, in the year 2000, this group of people, one network, one group of people, and all their splinter groups and networks and stuff, they start 500 24-7 houses of prayer in 500 different places. 500 different cities, towns, islands, whatever. 500 24-7 houses of prayer by one organization in a few years. That's never happened in the history of the earth. That's crazy. It is a sign that God is doing something profound in our generation that's very different than what's been done in previous generations. Let's keep moving. Top of page six. The year 2005, just a few years later, prisons in Argentina and in South Africa start 24-7 houses of prayer the same year. I don't know that they're not connected or that they're connected. I just know that the geography is very different. When you're talking about Argentina and South Africa, those two things are not next door to one another. It's two different prisons. I've seen the videos. These inmates are losing their minds. They are going for their, I mean, everything is a drum. The wall, that guy's bald head. I mean, they're just boom, boom, boom. They're just beating drums. They're just going for it. And they are having a ball because they're all saved in prison. And they are now going for it. They're praising Jesus night and day. Can you just imagine being that one hardcore thug? And you get sentenced, and you're like, oh, please don't let it be that prison. Oh, please. Hey, it's this prison. Dang it. The guy's doomed. He's given his life to Jesus. There's just no way around it. He's going to go in there, and these rowdy inmates that were all doing whatever they were doing to get incarcerated, they now love Jesus and doing 24-7 prayer incarcerated. The prison guard's testimony is, oh, yeah, all the violence has gone down. We have to worry about all this stuff. They're just, like, happy now. They two prisons the same year who who could think that up but jesus like we need 24 7 prayer let's do it in prison they got nothing but time unbelievable lord all right let's keep going i'm gonna skip most of section four you can read it on your own although i would say just a little synopsis of what section four is it's as best as i can define about whatever nine or ten different expressions of the house of prayer that are exploding all over the place. So if you're like, if you care, if it's, if you're a little bit of a nerd um, and you want to know what are some of the different expressions of what a house of prayer can look like or what are emerging all over, I gave you about 10 expressions that I can identify. All right, moving on to part five. What's happening across the earth right now? I'm going to start in Texas because praise the Lord, we live in the Republic of Texas. Okay, so I'm going to start here. There are now established houses of prayer all across this state. There are houses of prayer all over Texas. It is really cool. 
Andrew and Risa have done a good bit of traveling and have gotten to see a bunch of these different expressions. I've gotten to see a bunch of them too for different reasons. There are houses of prayer all over Texas. Several cities with multiple house of prayer expressions in the same area. You guys aren't unfamiliar with that. There's about 10 in the Houston area. 10. That's really cool. There's about eight, I think, in the, uh, the area of Austin. Several cities and towns with two or three. Right now, there's, I think it's 17 or 18 houses of prayer in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. What in the world is going on that there would be 17 or 18 houses of prayer in one city? The Lord is changing the expression of Christianity. And while it might not be happening at the pace that we wish, I would love for it to be going faster. It is for sure happening, and it is for sure happening faster than it was happening. The, the picture that I like to use is he's turned the faucet on finally. It was just drip for, for 2,000 years. It was drip. But now he's turning it on. <clears throat> and I think that that water is only going to continue to increase in how much volume is coming out of that thing. Okay. <clears throat> the Texas-Mexico border has 20 houses of prayer in it. This is just the funnest thing. There is this sweet lady. She might be the Mother Teresa of 2024, okay? Her name is Jennifer Gray. She is amazing. She's unassuming. She is sweet, and she is anointed. And she has worked with ministries on both the Texas side of the border and the Mexico side of the border and formed a network. And they call it Border Hop. And it's the Border Hop Network, and there's 20 houses of prayer I don't know the number now. Maybe it's a little higher, a little lower, but 20 was the number when last I knew. 20 houses of prayer that are in, <clears throat> a lot of times it'll be the, the city that's on this side of the border in Mexico will have a house of prayer, and then the same city on the other side of the border, that, on the Texas side, will have a house of prayer. And then you go, you know, whatever, you know, 30 miles or 100 miles up the road or up the river, and there, boom. And now you got another, you know, house of prayer there on either side kind of a thing. There's like 20 houses of prayer. This lady calls me. I wind up talking to her a number of years ago. And uh, she hears a little bit about what we've been doing as a house of prayer and, and that we do some of these conferences, something like this. And she says, she says, Brad, would you be willing to come and do a conference for the Border House of Prayer Network? And I go, yeah, that would be awesome. She said, well, can we do a moving conference? And I was like, what is a moving conference? She's like, well, can we do session one in this city? and then go across the, the border to Mexico and do session two there, and then travel 100 miles and do session three and then do session four, and can we, like, spend a week doing this? I was like, that sounds awesome and exhausting. Let's do it. And it was awesome and exhausting. And so we did it. We spent a week shoelacing the border. I don't even know how many cities I was in, how many were on the Mexico side, how many were on the Texas side. All I know is it was easy to get over the border to Mexico and it was slow to get back, okay? And so we just did that for a week. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to see this network firsthand. There were 20 houses of prayer that weren't tied by state or even nationality or by language. They were tied by border reality because the issues that faced on both sides of that border are so real and near and dear and people have got family on that side I mean all that kind of stuff I was like this is really cool there's a border network of 20 houses of prayer in Texas okay China now I got to give you a little bit of a history lesson because otherwise this this will be a so what moment okay in China, the, the infrastructure of the underground church in China, and just real quick, there's two versions of the church in China. There's the state church, which is arguably not real. <laughs> they're not real Christians, arguably. Because they're told by the state, you can say these things, you can't say these things. You can do these things, you can't do these things that are in the Bible and Jesus told you to do these things. There's the state church, and then there's the underground church. The underground church is the church that says, we're real Christians, we're going to do what we want, but we've got to do it in secret because if the government finds out about us, they will ABC, okay? The underground church in China, I'm going to go back a few decades and give you a little bit of kind of how the origin of how things look now in China, how it formed. A number of years ago, a group of persecuted believers 
They were preaching the gospel. They were getting imprisoned. They were holding on to their faith. They were hardcore for Jesus. They had angelic testimonies of getting them out of prison. They had some of the coolest stuff happen. If you guys have ever heard of the book Heavenly Man, Brother Yun, it is a powerful testimony that describes kind of some of the early starts of what would wind up becoming the apostolic leadership of the underground church in China, or at least much of, of the underground church. These guys were all getting thrown in prison and getting delivered and getting you know taken out of prison and, and I mean, persecuted and beaten and all sorts of horrible things. These guys formed just covenant together. They became very close friends. And as the decades unfolded, and as the gospel went forth, they formed gigantic underground church networks. Now, you've got these leaders that have been doing ministry for however many decades, a small network, and when they all sit around the table and they tell stories and what's going on, a small network is a million people. A small one. Some networks as big as 8 or 10 or 12 million people. Why do I tell you this? Because these guys are all buddies. And they're leading the church in China. And really, what's so unusual, think about the structure of the church in America. We got 38,000 denominations or something. It, you can't, you don't have that level of unity. In the underground church in China, if you can just get these 10 dudes to agree on something, you can make something happen. Okay? That's the reason I share that story. Now let's go to what happened a few years ago. We've got a dear friend. His name's Billy Humphrey. Billy Humphrey leads a praying church in the Atlanta area. And it used to be called IHOP Atlanta. They're the, uh, pretty much the only other 24-7 house of prayer in America that's got live worship. There's one more, but their infrastructure looks very different. So live worship in America, if you're talking 24-7 live worship, it's either in Kansas City or it's in Atlanta, and then also the one in D.C. But again, it's a little bit different structure. My point is, this guy's been going for it. Well, Brother Young, the guy that wrote that book, Heavenly Man, the guy that was one of the persecuted believers, and he's now one of these apostolic leaders in China, he's in Atlanta. And his translator, <clears throat> interpreter, reaches out to Billy and says, hey, are you Billy Humphrey? Yes. Um, uh, have you ever heard of Brother Young? Yeah, I know Brother Young. I read his book. It's amazing. He goes, well, Brother Young's in town, and he'd like to meet with you. And Billy goes, okay, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. And so he comes to their house of prayer and their meeting and, and uh, the, the interpreter says, Brother Yun says, tell him about the house of prayer. He's heard about what you guys are doing, but he, he doesn't understand it. Like, explain to him what you're doing. And Billy tells him just a little bit about their infrastructure and he explains Isaiah 62, Isaiah 56, Luke 18, the passage that we looked at last night. He gives him a few of these verses and goes, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes and he kind of gets done and he goes, there it is. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And the, the interpreter you know, talks to Brother Yun for a second, and he says, Brother Yun says, yes, he'll do it. And Billy's like, what, what does that mean? What do, you mean? what do you mean he'll do it? Well, he's going to go back to China, and he's going to tell the underground church that this is the way forward for the church, and that this is what they need to do. And Billy's like, okay, okay. I mean, what, what, can you imagine being that in that meeting? Like, okay, the underground church in China is going to just do it, okay? They start. 10,000 24-7 houses of prayer in the course of about a year. 10,000. That's a very old and low number now. That's how it started. Well, you want to know what happened in China? Revival. There were, at one point, there were over a million people coming to know Jesus in the underground church every single month. The underground church in China ballooned to 150 million believers in a short period of time while you've been alive. This happened a minute ago. This was just a few years back that all of this transitioned. Because what do you think's going to happen if you can get 10,000 24-7 houses of prayer contending for God, that many fiery Chinese believers, and God's going to go, oh, that's cute, sorry, I'm not listening right now. Revival's going to happen. That's what happens when you get that many people praying like that. What America needs is 10,000 24-7 houses of prayer. And we'll get what China got. All right. The tribes of the earth. Oh, no. Yeah, Indonesia, I already told you about that one. The tribes of the earth. 
Now, I've heard this same story, I don't know, five or six times. And the story, it always sounds the same, but it's from different missionaries in a different part of the world. So it's not the same story. It's just, it's like the same story because the Lord's doing the same thing over and over again in different places. Here's how the story goes. Again, five or six different times I've heard this from different places. Missionaries are wanting to reach out to this tribe over here in this isolated area. And they want to reach out because either they know they've never received the gospel before, or they believe they received the gospel, but it was a generation or two ago, and they haven't kept tabs on them. They don't know what's going on over there in that tribe in the hills or that tribe over on the, in the valley or whatever. You got me? You tracking? But five different locations all across the earth. I've heard the same story. Missionaries show up there, and not only do they find out that they've received the gospel, they find out that they have a nonstop prayer hut to God. Jesus. Christianity. I don't mean to a foreign God. I mean to Jehovah. They have a 24-7 house of prayer burning in their little village out in the middle of nowhere. And they ask, why are you doing this? Well, because we want to worship God all the time. Well, or in this one, it's under that tree. It's the prayer tree. This one, it's the prayer hut. This one, it's the prayer pavilion. It's like, and you do it unbroken? Well, yeah, we want to, we, we pray in there all the time. We have people, they take shifts. What is happening? God says, I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I am going to do it. I am, help, I am grateful for whatever partnership you want to be a part of this, but I am telling you what I am doing, and I'm going to do it with or without your help. I am going to birth a 24-7 prayer and worship reality in the earth in one generation. Now, this isn't exactly that same story, but it touches on it a little bit, and it's a personal one. <clears throat> so I've got a friend, and he, he's been leading for a number of years a house of prayer in Iowa, okay? And he also loves to do gospel crusades in Africa. And so what he'll do is he'll fund the crusade himself. He'll bring in an evangelist. <clears throat> they'll rent out a soccer stadium. They'll get pamphlets out everywhere. They'll work with the local pastors to gather a huge crowd of people in order to preach the gospel and get a ton of people saved in Africa. He loves doing it. He's done I don't know how many of them. He's working with a pastor, this is a number of years ago, in Mombasa, Kenya. Mombasa is the second largest city in Kenya, Nairobi being the first. So just there's a little bit of, you know, geography for you, okay? So it's a large city. He's working with a pastor who serves as the lead pastor, kind of an apostolic leader, over a hundred churches in the Mombasa area. So there's a hundred churches that are working together to do this conference, or, or rather this um, uh, crusade, and, um, and there's this leader, and he's a really humble guy, really good dude, and he's in contact with my friend Mike, okay? And so Mike is working with him, and they're talking about the, the upcoming crusade, and they're working out a few details, and when they get done with the conversation, the pastor from Africa says to Mike, Brother Mike, can I tell you another thing I'm really excited about? And Mike goes, well, sure. He goes, well, the pastors in our network, we were just given some land, and we're really excited about it. And Mike goes, okay, cool, what is it? He goes, well, we're going to build a pavilion on this land. And what we're going to do is we're going to work with all our congregations, and we're going to take turns and shifts so that there's always prayer and worship happening in this pavilion from, from the church of Mombasa, that we all share the responsibility and all this. And Mike goes, cool, like a house of prayer. And the pastor in Kenya goes, What's a house of prayer? And Mike goes, you know, like Mike Bickle, I have Kansas City. It's like, who is Mike? What is Mike Bickle? I don't know what you're talking about. He had no idea what was being discussed because he's like, I'm not doing this because somebody in America is doing it. We're doing it because we thought it was God. And so, so, so Mike goes, Mike goes, pastor, you know, this is what I do, right? And, and the pastor in Kenny goes, no, what do you mean? He goes, I have a house of prayer. Like, our objective is to worship God night and day. This is in the Bible. This is prophesied in the Bible. And he gives him a few Bible verses. The pastor from Kenya loses his mind. And he goes, no, Brother Mike, this is unbelievable. This is in the Bible? Like, this is in the Bible? He goes, he goes yeah, this, this is a, it's all in the Bible. And, and like, there's all these teachings and all this stuff. And the pastor goes, Brother Mike, you've got to come to Kenya a few days early before the crusade. And I'll get all the pastors together. And you've got to tell them all of this 
You got to teach him everything. And Mike goes, no, 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 you don't want me. You want my friend Brad. Gosh, Mike. So Mike is calling me to tell me he's, he's voluntolding me. I mean, it's already over. He's already told the pastor I'm coming. He goes, look, I'll pay your way. You're going. I went to Mombasa, Kenya, and a room of about 100 pastors. I guess it was like, I think like 85 or 90 were in attendance. 85 or 90 different local churches were represented, and I did this conference. I taught them this stuff. And you just haven't lived till you've been uh, translated into Swahili. I'm just telling you right now. I mean, everybody needs that opportunity because it doesn't sound like what you said is, is for sure, okay? And, and there's always the delay effect with translation because you say something and, you, and you're waiting for the ha-ha moment and then the guy's got to translate it and it's like three minutes later and they ah ha-ha. I was like, uh, kind of lackluster now, but okay. And so anyway, these pastors, they're getting their minds blown because they're hearing God is doing something and it's the thing that we had in our heart to do. And their, their, their minds are blown. You know what happened as soon as we left? They started a prayer meeting. They've been meeting daily ever since we left. That was four years ago. They've had a house of prayer in Mombasa since that time. And their game plan is to get it to be 24-7 one day. I'm like, Lord, you are doing this. This is really happening. All right, there's just so much stuff here to say. I don't know how much of it to say. Um, Look, I'll just say this on part E, and then we'll move on uh, to letters, or to Roman numeral six. Um, there are now known missions bases all over the earth. I'm going to give you a really quick definition of how I would define a missions base, a house of prayer missions base. Here's how I would define it. If you have a different definition and you like your definition, you use yours and forget mine. But in a way, for me to be able to talk about it, here's how I would find the difference between a house of prayer and a house of prayer missions base. A house of prayer has prayer meetings, wants more prayer meetings, and won't take no for an answer. Like, we are going to have more prayer meetings. We are going to worship Jesus. We're going to get as close to night and day as we can get. We are going to build Jesus a house of prayer. That's what I would call a house of prayer, okay? Then a house of prayer missions base is that plus the missional component of we must replicate. It's not enough for us that we build a house of prayer. We've got to go help other houses of prayer get started and moving forward and go plant other houses of prayer. That, so it's the missional component of that reality. Meaning they will spread, increase, and multiply. You tracking? So the difference between a church and a church that plants churches. Okay? That kind of a concept. There are now house of prayer missions bases all over the world. We know of a dozen or more that we've got friends there that like we could call or email or text. I've met with the leader a time or three or whatever. You know, we've been there in some cases. There are now house of prayer mission spaces all over the earth. What does that indicate? It means that God will be multiplying this reality. That's what that means. That is, that is an aggressive move of the kingdom of God to advance this initiative, okay? All right, let's move over to uh, part six here because it's encouraging. Well, if you can get however many millions of people in China praying night and day, and then you get a, a movement there where 150 or the, the, the believing community grows to 150 million, I don't know what the number was when it started, but a lot less than that. Uh, you can believe that wherever night and day prayer is going forth, it's impacting the spiritual climate, right? I mean, don't we believe our Bibles enough that like, if we pray, God does stuff. And if we don't pray, there literally is stuff that God was willing to do that he's not going to do. I mean, that's what prayer means. Like, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I'll do stuff. And if they don't, I won't do stuff. I mean, it's just, that's how prayer works. 24-7 houses of prayer filling the earth. The spiritual atmosphere is shifting. Revivals are breaking out. One of my favorite realities of what's happening is all the 24-7 houses of prayer and that are in the 1040 window, that are in the Muslim world, but not only the ones that are there, all the 24-7 houses of prayer across the earth that are aiming their prayer cannon at the Muslim world. God save Muslims. God bring Muslims, you know, the, the descendants of, you know, of Ishmael. Thank you. I was going to say Esau, but I knew that was wrong. The descendants of Ishmael bring them now into the kingdom. Do you know what God has started doing? He started looting Islam from within. It is now the most normal thing in Muslim-majority countries that people have dreams and see the man in white in their sleep. And then they have to reconcile, who is this man in white? It's, 
it's Jesus. It's, oh my gosh, Jesus, the, the Jesus of the Christians, not the Jesus that we thought. And, and Jesus is revealing himself. There are entire mosques that have converted to Christianity under the leader of the Sheikh or the, the uh, Imam over that place. That they've come to Jesus and not told anybody, and then they're preaching details, and entire mosques have converted in some cases. It is an unbelievable thing that is happening. The Lord is on the move in the Muslim world. There are great revivals that are happening. I'm just going to give you a couple for instances. The nation of Jordan, there's uh, some missionaries that we've got connections to them. We don't know them, but we know people who know them. And uh, their testimony was, for the last 20 years, they had only seen a handful of people give their lives to Jesus in 20 years. But as all this night and day prayer stuff is happening, they saw... 20,000 people come to know the Lord in about a year and a half. Friends, that's soil shifting, right? Okay, so that's in Jordan. In Morocco, we hear about this uh, friend. It's what's fun to do prayer and missions. You meet all these people that know all these people that have got crazy stories of what's going on across the earth. And I'm glad to be able to know some of these stories to come and share them with you. So we've got a friend and they're connected with this missionary. This missionary, they have a taxi ministry. You go, what's a taxi ministry? Well, every day they get up. It's a girl. She gets up. She gets a taxi. She's in a Muslim country. She's in Morocco. She, uh, she gets up. She takes a taxi to the other side of town. She gets a cup of coffee or lunch. She takes a taxi and she comes home. What kind of ministry is that? I like that. The ministry of eating. That sounds great. Except every taxi driver, she asks them, have you seen the man in white in your dreams? Six out of ten say yes. And just so you know, one of the tenets of Islam is lie if it will protect Islam. So who knows on those other four out of ten if they really haven't or who knows. But six out of ten straight up admit to it. And when they admit to it, she shares the gospel with them and nearly all of them get saved. She sees a very high percentage of those taxi drivers give their lives to Jesus. Because they're like, well, he's coming to me in the night and I didn't really know what it was. And thank you for telling me. And okay, I'll give my life to him. What the world? Another one, this is Lebanon. Lebanon's a bit hardcore, okay? This lady, <clears throat> she, this is another Christian missionary. One time, she's taking a taxi, and she can tell that the taxi driver is clearly a hardline jihadi. It's really obvious from all the paraphernalia in the front and all the stuff. And while she's in the taxi ride, she hears the Holy Spirit specifically say, tell them Jesus loves them. Tell them about me. And she's like, no, I do not want to die today in this taxi. And the whole taxi drive, the Holy Spirit just will not let it go. Tell him I love him. Tell him I love him and tell him about me. So she's like really freaking out. And she's trying to figure out, how do I obey but not obey? And so she comes up with a plan. And the plan is she's going to pay the taxi fare. She's going to get out of the car. She is going to plant her foot and get ready to push off of the car and say, Jesus loves you, and then start hightailing it as fast as she can to whatever nearest shelter. That's the plan. Okay. So she pays the you know, guy, and she gets out of the car, and she says, Jesus loves you, and she starts to run, and she hears him go, wait! Tell me about him. He's come to me in my dreams. Tell me about him. And he was, in fact, a hardline jihadi, and he gave his life to Jesus. See, these are Muslim nations. What is happening? The, the soil is shifting. Night and day prayer is impacting the culture of the earth. If we want to see the greatest revival in human history, I know how we get there. It's night and day prayer. Let me say it differently. Will not God bring about justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Yes, I tell you the truth. He will see to it that they get justice and quickly. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's Luke 18. The promise of Luke 18 is actually speedy justice. There is no greater justice than revival. You, you upset everything. You turn everything on its head. You get lost people saved. The greatest injustice is that Satan has got people bound up in hell. Revival is what we need. The greatest justice, it's actually birthed by night and day prayer. Okay? So powerful stuff. All right, one more story on this, and then we'll wrap up. Do our little break. Now, in my opinion, and heaven really doesn't care what I think. So I'll just tell you that. This is like, who cares what you think, Brad? Nobody. In my opinion, I think the way that America left Afghanistan was one of the worst things that's ever happened. I think not that we left, 
perhaps leaving was right, but the manner in which we left, I think was just a total debacle, okay? We left all of the armament in the hands of those that we had been battling against that are terrorists and blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's what I think heaven's like. So what, Brad? You don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you what happened in the wake of our exit from Afghanistan, the American troops exit. Our missiologists, those that are involved in missions over there, connected on the ground, they knew of about, I think it was, the number was 320 house churches. 320 cell groups, house churches, believing communities, 320 small groups of people that believed in Jesus throughout the land of Afghanistan before we took our exit. In the two weeks after we exited, because of the tremendous pressure and tension and the gospel being shared and people being scattered, the number went from 320 to 2,500 house churches in two weeks' time. Okay, God, I guess it doesn't matter what I think. Because you work for the good of those who love you, and you are able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. And you care about salvation infinitely more than you do about Humvees. Wow, Lord, your ways are higher than mine. 2,500, and that number has ballooned so much since then. I, I told this story in, uh, in, a, in a similar context um, and there was somebody that was connected today, connected to the underground church in Afghanistan. And they were like, oh, bro, that is such an old number. <laughs> like, it is so much bigger than I was like, thank you, Jesus. Another Muslim majority nation, hardcore, very difficult reality. Why are we doing this conference? What is all this about? Here's my hope. You would see what God is doing in your generation and you join it. There are things that are happening in this generation that are happening right now that we're responsible for. God has always wanted the lost to be saved. God has always wanted churches to start and grow. God has always wanted the word of the Lord to go forth. There's a bunch of things that God has always wanted, and he still wants all those things. But he has not been building a global prayer movement for 2,000 years, and he is right. Biblical prophecy is being fulfilled on your watch while you're alive. I want to implore you to hear that message from earlier this afternoon about the life of David and what God esteemed about David and the invitation to be like him. Do you know you could make your whole life about this? You could make your new life vision, I want to be like David. You could make your new goal, your, you could reset your desires of your heart, and you could go, I want to be like David. I want to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart. And I now know what that means. Give myself no rest until I've seen established a dwelling place for God in Galveston. He wants it in every city. He cares about Galvestinians. Galvestonians, Galvanites. He cares about Galvanites. He wants people of Galveston to know him. He wants people of Galveston, every Gentile to participate in Galveston, in the restoration of the tabernacle of David. I want to implore you, don't just be entertained. I know these stories are encouraging. I tell them so that you be encouraged. I use a little bit of humor because it's better than me using whatever the opposite of humor is. Guys, the point is to see what God is doing in your generation and throw yourself at it. I'm going to get sober with you for a second. You're going to stand before him one day. That's really going to happen. And you're going to give an account of your life. And unfortunately for you, this conference is now part of what you're responsible for. Because you heard it. And most of you went, that's God. Your heart can become calloused if you don't act on it. I came into town to throw a giant hand grenade in your midst and then leave tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, Robert. Take care of it, buddy. 
the Lord is calling this generation to radically advance the kingdom of God in the realm of night and day prayer and other things as well but those other things have been on the list for a long time but there's a new objective to change the expression of Christianity in the generation that every Gentile will participate in the house of prayer specifically in the restoration of the tabernacle of David that's what we're doing that's what this conference is about you guys seeing that and being stirred by it and then having a bigger reach this next week than you had last week a bigger reach that says I'll give up a little bit more to make this happen I'll actually start double tithing to help make this thing happen I'll figure out a way I'll give up more of my time I'll retire a year early and give myself to the house of prayer I'll start raising support and doing this as a big I'm gonna start telling all my friends to get involved in this I'm gonna use all my influence I'm I am gonna be about building God's house of prayer here in Galveston guys that's what I genuinely believe is on the Lord's agenda for this house and this region. Father, I want to ask you for help because that was a really hard thing to say. But it's a harder thing to hear. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd give grace. Oh, merciful God, if this is really you, if it's really you, not if I'm just a hype man, not if this is just a cool, fun fad, but if it's really you, would you bear witness in their hearts? Would you bear witness to your plan? And then would you call people to your agenda in Jesus' name?